I've told you the story, right, of one of the silliest things I've ever seen a cat do. Uh, I forget. It was on campus somewhere that had an air conditioner in the window. I guess it was probably Wayne. Yes. Uh, And Parachute was kind of just growing out of being a kitten. Uh, I watched her. (laughs) She she spotted a fly in the apartment and she caught it and killed it. And then she carried it over to the window and dropped it inside the air conditioner and then (laughs) looked over at me for some kind of validation as if like, this is what I'm supposed to do, right? That was the right thing. (laughs) That's why she thinks that thing is there. Now she's glaring at me. I shouldn't have told that story. I'm sorry. I think that's brilliant. You said it was in the air conditioner. Well, it probably kind of buzzes, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. So it's like like with like? Like with like. (laughs) Yeah. Sorting. Sorting Sorting the apartment. Hello, and welcome to Good-Looking People in Small Clever Rooms that Utilize Every Centimeter of Available Space with Mind-Boggling Efficiency. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with Brianna. Hello. As always, we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hi. And by our friend, Vinny. Hi. Uh, Our reading this week was a long-ish one, uh, and Mm -hmm. is entirely about AA meetings. Yeah. Yes, it was strangely one topic. Yes. (laughs) For many pages, it was a little yeah. disorienting, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, so I know we've already talked about kind of um, Wallace and his um, relationship with AA. Do we know if uh, he ever lived in Boston, though? Okay, so here, I, wanna, I want to preface this. I, I, I'm just going to billboard this at the top, and I think it's something that I'd like to talk about at the end of the episode with everyone's permission. Um I would like to take this episode uh, as an opportunity to go hard into David Foster Wallace's biography just for a bit. I would um, like to do that because I was I, wondering so, as I read so I, it about I his do this with, with AA. I do this yeah. with a little trepidation because I don't think that his experience, like his life experiences are the be all and end all for, for discussing the book. I think that the book has a, has a life of its own and ultimately it's about what it means to us. Mm -hmm. Um, but I am interested not just in like infinite just as a work of literature, but also in Wallace's writing process. Um, uh, and and I'm curious about how he kind of weaves his experiences into his writing. Um, so, with everyone's permission and acknowledgement that we won't let this color our reading of the book too much, um, I do have some stuff to talk about maybe at the end of the episode. Okay. I would. That sounds good. I because I I kept having the question of. It's such, it's kind of a, what do I want to say? It's such an, it feels like such an unusual chunk of pages in this book. And that almost everything that we've read has been. Or that uh, copy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yum, yum. Mm -hmm. 
what do I want to say? That it's all kind of looked at. Look, I'm. It's things are not. Things don't feel so real heartfelt about anything. In that, it just seems yeah. like this part, the parts about AA, and especially seen through Gately's description of what happens in AA and Gately's take on the power of the 12 step program seems strangely complimentary and, uh, uh, oddly sincere, oddly sincere in a weird way. Like in this book where everything seems so out of whack and so disjointed and so much dread everywhere you turn that this, that AA, which you would think, I mean, judging from how the rest of the book is written, that there would be a lot more sarcasm and, and disbelief in the, or, or just kind of belittling the program. Yeah, or a lot the more. Pitfalls, all the things that are wrong with it. But the overall tone is like, I don't know why it works, but it really does work. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Also, it, oh, go ahead, Vinny. Okay. Um, it also just seems a lot more honest. Like if this was like um, a lot of other parts of the book, I feel like there would be a lot more, uh, for lack of a better term, wackiness. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. like I, I could imagine if he were talking about this the same way that he talks about like, like youth tennis, which he also right. has a lot of experience with. Right. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine that the the AA has added like some bizarre thirteenth step and like. Right. But this right. seems like like um, you know, unchanged from from the way an AA meeting would work in real life. Right, right, yeah, which is um, why I get so interested in his own personal right. um so that yeah, there's also a, a, another thing that Mom, I think you mentioned is the sincerity of this, and I do right. think this is intriguing. This is something that I'd love to talk about more in the context of the larger book because um in in my f- getting familiar with David Foster Wallace's writing, particularly from like the beginning of like the early to mid nineties. Um, he was kind of on a crusade against irony and, uh, and, huh. and really wrote, he wrote this essay that's reprinted in a supposedly fun thing. I'll never do again called E Unibus Plurum. That's about America's relationship with television and and um, and also with the way that television in particular, but American culture at large, like deploys and commercializes irony and ironic detachment and um, ironic self-awareness. Hmm. Um, huh. It even says in in this section, there's a there's a. Uh, this chapter, there's a section I underlined where it describes uh, the speeches at AA meetings as being maximally unironic. An ironist in a Boston AA meeting is a witch in church. Irony-free zone. Um, which uh, intrigues me because... Well, for a number of reasons. One, I think I fundamentally disagree. Um, but... Say more about that. I think that David Foster Wallace's definition of irony is uh, is terribly limited. Um, 
I think that really what he's talking about is like sarcasm and flavors of sarcasm. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. Which which I agree is like, you know, you can't you can't be sarcastic and sincere at the same time. But I do also think that sarcasm has its place in literature. Um, and uh I, w- I was trying to track down, I could have sworn there was like a TV interview with him where he outlined some of his philosophies about the the dangers or the, the, the pitfalls of irony, and I wasn't able to find it. There's a video on YouTube mm. that I think I've actually shown my, uh, my writing students before that kind of uh, dissects his views on, on his opposition to irony, but I couldn't actually find the original source material. I did find a later interview with him from around 2000 where he, um, he says his views on irony are more nuanced um, and that he, he expressed more of a dismay at the way that both base irony and base sincerity are commodified and instrumentalized as tools of capitalism. Mm. Um, and and how that ultimately drains the literary value out of any work, regardless of how sincere it is to be uh, to be ultimately a tool of capital. I mean, I don't disagree that I think that irony or sarcasm writ large is perhaps trendy. Um, I don't know. I think about hipsters and yeah. their ironic like of certain things um and how that was latched onto and capitalized upon as a style all of a sudden there's um yeah and, and it was it was certainly uh i think more of a thing in popular culture in the the mid 90s when he was writing i think that there was this mm-hmm. like resurgence of sincerity in pop popular entertainment um that we may that we're still kind of sitting in i think um i don't know i think i think that there's a lot of um hate watching of media that's true that i interpret as ironic Mm -hmm. um that still happens now and there are characters that i've seen in sitcoms that are probably what i would call like judgmental of sincerity and so overcorrecting with excess sarcasm i feel like in the recent past that's certainly true um but i feel like um now we're starting to go more and more towards sincerity and more and more towards looking at these um ironic sarcastic individuals but then peeling back and looking at the sincerity beneath that yeah um i'm i'm gonna paste a link into this like video essay about david foster wallace's views on irony i don't think it's something to watch now it's like i don't know it's like 10 minutes long or something but Hmm. uh we don't we don't need to take the time to watch it now but there is there's a thing that it does that i think kind of kind of proves his later point which is that it takes his comments about irony and the way irony is deployed on television um and and looks at some examples of them that are you know they're like are you okay sorry i swallowed some coffee the wrong way choking on his coffee Um, i knew that mm, i could tell after pouring Uh, the coffee choking (laughs) on the coffee it's all part of the yeah it's all on the timeline the the, the coffee continuum um sound story you're painting yeah um 
So like uh, it looks at Seinfeld as an example of yeah. a sitcom that criticizes the way in which nothing happens in sitcoms. Uh, it looks at South Park. Uh, there's a you know there's a scene in a South Park movie where they're talking about how they're not going to see something because the animation's really bad, and then it you know shows them being poorly animated. Um, uh, you know, countless TV commercials that kind of recognize and, and self-deprecate about the fact, the fact that there are TV commercials that are designed to encourage you to buy a thing, but that still doesn't stop them from encouraging you to buy the thing. Um, and then it kind of turns the page and it's like, but here's the new guard of, of TV entertainment that embraces sincerity above irony. And it mentions like, you know, someone that we just mentioned last week, Mike Schur, uh, uh, mm-hmm. The Office and Parks and Recreation and um, Community, Rick and Morty, I think they mention, among others, uh, uh, BoJack Horseman and stuff like that, that are that are like, I think it makes a pretty good case that those shows do value like sincerity or like a core of sincerity in a way that something like Seinfeld or The Simpsons doesn't. Yeah, um, which and I'm not like it's an interesting thing to chart the the expansion of in pop culture. Maybe it's not expansion either. I mean, it's entirely possible that these things were also happening in the 90s and it's just kind of cherry picking its examples. Right. But um, I don't know. It <laughs> it makes me a little wary of that conclusion to be like these were the bad mass market ironic entertainments, but now here are the good mass market sincere entertainments. Well, like, I also don't think that irony is necessarily bad. Yeah. Within media, I think that the I think that the stumbling block is when irony turns into cynicism. Yes. And that to me, as a as a consumer, I'm not interested in watching that because it makes me feel icky. Yeah. Um, mm. He says, uh, he mentions in E Unibus Plurum, uh, ironic detachment and self-deprecation are ultimately nihilistic and deconstructive. Irony tyrannizes us, and the central point of irony is I don't actually mean what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, you know, that's that's a real problem, I think, narratively and, and, and in in narrative art because ultimately if everything that you say and do is tinged with this or or viewed through this lens of ironic detachment it's a way of telling your audience that nothing that's happening actually matters right Mm -hmm. Um, which to me seems like political double talk or (laughs) like why do i need political double talk in my media i get enough of it from politicians Although I do, I think I think the strength of irony is that it's critical of its of itself and its medium in a way that yeah. sincerity often can't be. Um, Maybe I don't know. I mean, I think that you brought up Parks and Recreation, so I immediately am like, oh, the most sincere character is Leslie Nope. I think she gets criticized, or at least critiqued well enough within that oh yeah lens she gets critiqued as a character in a show but i think that the value of irony is in like metacriticism of of the show itself uh which is something that and that's partly just like the model of the office and parks and recreation is that they don't do that i think the value of irony in a show like something like a tv show is that it can recognize the weirdness of being a commodity that's sold to an audience um, 
but that also needs to say something that connects with that audience on a human level? I don't know. I think in some ways, irony is good because because it lets the listener figure out what the point of whatever is being told is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when sincerity is more like, when I think of something being really sincere, I feel like it doesn't leave much to your, to the listener or readers. It doesn't give you the responsibility of figuring out what in the world, you know, what is the point of this because they're telling you. It's like, right. yeah. it's much more literal yeah. in a way that sincerity it seems so much more literal in its meaning than irony does. Well, that's also, I think, part of this this section being as sincere sounding at least as it mm-hmm. is um even gately's like self-deprecating about or not self-deprecating but um he's kind of like i don't know what the point how this works but it right. does yeah and right. um i don't know it I'm trying to get around to the point that irony makes the viewer think that they're smarter than they are because they have to, because (laughs) Uh viewing the media is suddenly a puzzle. Smarter Mm, or more clever, maybe. Mm -hmm. I'm cleverer, I'm more clever than... Right, so the ironic, the person who enjoys ironic media is the person who looks down upon sincerity because it's simplistic. Right. Right. But yeah. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I, I I think it's it's foolish to write off one to the exclusion of the other. Right. Agreed. They both have uh, their place. And 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 I do. <laughs> I think the mostly what the problem that I have with <laughs> David Foster Wallace's crusade against irony is. Uh, uh, the, the way that he paints irony with such a broad brush, because I think mm-hmm. that also like if you're looking for irony in, in infinite jest, there is so much irony right. happening. Say, you know, there's like mm-hmm. cosmic yeah. irony. You there's, say he's anti-irony like every other yeah. paragraph. There's ironic stuff. Yeah, dr- there's so much dramatic done. irony. I, I mean, if you define irony at its base level as like expecting one thing and getting something else, that's right. almost the definition of narrative. Um, uh huh. So, yeah. And infinite jest. And especially yes, infinite yeah. jest, right. <laughs> right. Right. Writ large, infinite jest is a piece of literature that you expect one thing, and yeah. you pick up this book and you open uh-huh. it, and there are end notes. Yep. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I did, I, I felt like I learned a lot about AA in this chapter. Because mm-hmm. I don't have that much, I don't have experience with it. I know a little about it, uh, and I have friends who have who participate in AA, and mm-hmm. have for many years. But but I thought I just found it really interesting. I found it interesting how it's this uh, this I guess you say organization. But it's so loose, like they talk about, Gately talks about how it doesn't really have regulations and it's not like, it's not like there's a lot written down about what each of these chapters has to specifically do to run mm-hmm. their, their chapter. Yes, they all have the 12 steps, but they, but how they, how they structure their meetings, like they talk about, um, 
the Massachusetts meetings, the Boston meetings, are so different in that when you speak about your, when you share your story, you don't do it to your own group. You go to another group to share. I looked that up too, and it's true that that, mm-hmm. that is true. They they travel to to share their story with other groups, not within their own. Mm. And uh, I don't know. It just the somewhere he talks about how they don't tell you that you can't do this, but they, but but I mean that they do have they do have a lot of unwritten rules that end up enforcing expectations without really ever stating the expectations as you have to do this or you're out or, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, so it was, it was interesting. Yeah. I also have to say just almost right away, there was a comment about one of the, one of the guys at the, at the AA meeting looking like a, a perfect cross between, between pictures of Dick Cavett and Truman Capote. I know this yes. is just a very tiny little piece, but when I was, uh, uh, Dick Cabot was my favorite late night mm, uh, yeah, guy. Yeah, fascinating guy. Mm. He's a fascinating guy, and I had never thought about how he, how much he and Truman Capote actually look alike. You know, it's funny <laughs> so because fun. <laughs> I, I know I, I can picture in my head Dick Cavett pretty uh-huh. well, but yeah. any time I try and picture Truman Capote, it's uh-huh. pushed out of my head by the face of Philip Seymour Hoffman dressed yes. as Truman yes. Capote. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, I know. I had, to look, I had to look up the pictures and put them side by side. Uh, it was kind of startling. I could see it. And, 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 and note 134. Oh, yeah. Joelle's alive. Joelle's yeah. at yes. Emmett House. Yes. <laughs> she got hauled to the emergency room, and uh, they did all kinds of things to her to keep her alive. And the ER doctor, for some reason, pulled strings to get her jumped to the head of the waiting list, and she was dumped into Emmett House just like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What does it say? In he like saw he saw her unveiled face and felt some kind of deep yes. compassion. Deeply, he was deeply affected. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there she is. She yeah. She jumps a bunch of uh, in front of a bunch of people to get in right. and doesn't have to get a humility job. Um, yeah, she didn't even have to do the like um, pre-screening interview process right. with the dogs and everything. Right. Yeah. So In fact, it, it, she's oh, getting, she's getting, that. lot, that's right, mm-hmm. I forgot yeah. about the dogs, too. Yeah. Uh, and she's, she doesn't have to uh, do all the same stuff that everybody, yeah. she's got it, some it special me, dispensations. It makes me wonder how this is going to go for her. It seems maybe antithetical to the place to, to skip all those things. In in fact, it says Gately's already seen enough private type arrangements between certain staffers and residents to feel like it's maybe kind of a character defect of Ennett House. Uh Uh-huh. And yeah, what were they going to do with her? Yeah. I guess they could have admitted her to a psych unit like uh, what happened to Kate Gompert, but... Mm -hmm. But we also... Find we also Kate find out she's, here. she's there too. Everybody, yeah. all of these <laughs> all uh, peripheral together. little characters in the little vignette chapters that we've had are all showing up at Ennett House. Yeah, yeah, I find it all very gratifying. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that struck me, so I have just such little random thoughts when I yeah, read this. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like uh, Don Gately talking about 
that there are these shared experiences that everybody has when they're when they seek out AA and start start going. Uh, and one of the things he talks about is that you have you have to hit bottom, but then he says that actually hitting bottom when you have a substance abuse issue is more like being on the edge of a cliff. Yeah. Like high up with this vast, you know, void around you and nowhere to go, which made me, which immediately led me to Marat and Steepland mm-hmm. <laughs> on the cliff's edge. And I, I don't know what that means, but it's what I, I did think of that. It, it's a great image. It's a very evocative image. Yeah. And also, I found it so interesting, that whole thing about the other thing that he said they all, the shared experience they have is that uh, that AA does shockingly, the shocking discovery that AA really does work against all reason, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, that, uh, and that it does something to you when you, it, it, mess, it really knocks you loose from your past habits and past life in a way, when mm-hmm. you realize when you realize that it does seem to be working even though there's no way that it should be. Hmm. And that leads you to then realize that you can't, um, like you can no longer trust yourself. Yeah. Because you believed so strongly that something with such ridiculous premises as AA, you you were so sure that it couldn't work and now it is working. So that shows that you don't know anything and you can't trust your instinct. Like, you know, you thought, oh, this isn't going to work, but I'll, you know, here I am, but it's not going to work for me. And then it does. And so what does that mean about your, uh, your ability to figure out what will work and what won't? (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing that he just another little uh, uh, thing was about he's he was talking about why people end up at Ennett House and he said that both Erdetti and Kate Gompert were there claimed to be there because of addiction to marijuana. Yeah, and, and he's kind of skeptical Don Gately of that. Is skeptical of that. He doesn't think that 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 would be enough. Although, you know, he's very careful not to, to try makes not me, to it, judge you know, others. But it, it does make me wonder about whether there's some particularly, like, right. abnormally addictive strain of Bob Hope going around Cambridge right. area. Mm-hmm. Right. That there's yeah. something unusual about the weed that they're using. That it's... Mm-hmm. There's another thing that comes up in the narration about, like, the the sort of common shared experience of, of falling victim to addiction and kind of the stages that you go through. Um, it mentions that, uh, the substance you thought was your one true friend, uh, uh, your mother and your lover and God and compadre has finally removed its smiley face mask to reveal centerless eyes and a ravening maw and canines down to here. It's the face in the floor, grinning root white face of your worst nightmares. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to point that out because that's Hal's memory. That's Hal's Hal's nightmare thing about the right. The face in the floor. The face in the floor that's always there that you didn't notice yeah. until just now. And, and how yet, creepy is that? Mm-hmm. Ostensibly, this narration is from the perspective of Don Gately. Right. Kind I wondered of. about that, too. 
Um, although there's also some, there's some more of the like, um, f- uh, end notes that imply that there's some like linguistic elaboration happening in this right. section too. Or like, like mm-hmm. linguistic editing. Yeah. The, right. the speaker yeah. doesn't actually use the terms thereon most assuredly or right. oper- operant limbic system, though she really had before said chordate phylum. So, right. and, and that doesn't say like, usually when we're getting close narration from Don Gately, we're hearing it in much more, simplistic language and you know right. we're sometimes even hearing like getting malapropisms in the narration uh-huh. um which <laughs> th- is not happening here right which i'm not really sure what to make of yeah yeah me neither except to guess at maybe it be actually being from somebody else's i mean it sounds First, like how like like it does it's, it sounds like yeah, Hal yeah, telling yeah. Don Gately's story. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, because they use he he does he says the same things about like uh, Pemulus uh, and the Eschaton manual. Yeah. You yeah. know that yeah. it's that he's kind of chiming in or, or, or punching it up. He wouldn't have said yeah. that or but but you know. Oh, the other thing the thing about the not having real clear regulations in an AA group right that you have mm-hmm. to do this or you're out i like somewhere it says nobody no one's going to make you do anything it's all optional do it or die right like that. yeah i mean isn't one that of the, the crocodiles of, yeah one of the crocodiles says yeah. that it, it's 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 suggested to use a parachute when you jump out of an airplane right like it's that kind of optional right, right. i made mm-hmm. me think about you know we all have things in our life that actually kind of falls into that like mm-hmm. well yeah you could do that yeah. Of course, you know, it may, it, it may, it may almost certainly lead to your death or total ruin, but you know, right. you can do it if you want to. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, another little detail that I loved, I think it's, I think it's speaking hyperbolically, but I want to believe that it's actually literally true that one of the residents at Ennett House at some point had a tattoo that said born to be unpleasant. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I like that too. That another there was also a description somewhere about I don't know if he was talking about the speaker or or I don't know if it was I don't know I don't know I can't remember now who it was talking about, but it said something like his head's too big to be subtle with. <laughs> oh that's oh, yeah. talking about yeah. Don Gately. Yeah. Talking about Gately. His head's yeah. too big to be subtle with. Another thing, one of the end notes it just mentions, like, the point of the end note, I think, was to mention that uh, the Ennett House residents that are black mingle with other blacks. Oh, yes. that, yeah. That yeah. they're very segregated at this meeting. Mm-hmm. And I Which thought is, it was interesting that that was pointed out. It is. It was I just mean, pointed out as sort of a... It's, it's certainly, it, I get the sense that that's just kind of the way this city works, right? Mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and right. It, it, historically that would be very true. Mm-hmm. You know, New England mm-hmm. is a deeply segregated and deeply racist place uh, right. with, a, with a long history of anti-desegregation. Uh, and the other, the other person that we forgot that has shown up at Ennett House is Clonette. Is it Ennett House? Yeah, that's right. Oh. Wardeen's half-sister yes Mordine's mm-hmm. half-sister why are all these people showing up there so that 
So in isn't a, it in good? A yeah, it's just like it's, kind it's of like thing. this nexus it's of, of yeah, all these it, stories it, are finally of, converging. Right, and and in spite of the fact that this chapter is kind of one of hope that maybe you can beat these this these horrible uh, holds that a substance has on you. There there is some hope that you could beat it. Uh, that and all these people that we've worried about in the past are showing up there, and yet the fact that they're all showing up there makes me feel deeply suspicious and dread-filled. <laughs> well, and there's there's a moment where I didn't highlight it, so I don't think I'm going to be able to find it. That um, in like the intermission for the meeting, um, Joel, they're talking about uh, but for the grace of God and right. how it's you know just yes, another yes, one of yes, these yes, meaningless. Yes, yes slogans pa- and yes. and Joel says uh, Joel says something about like her problem with it isn't that it's like another meaningless slogan but that it's grammatically meaningless I know right. I thought like, of Avril I thought she yeah. sounds just yeah. like Avril yeah. yeah I thought a lot of her too and um, Avril didn't much like Joel right correct okay. is that true right. I thought we yes. didn't know they said no when they talked about Avril or uh, Joel Oren took Joel to the incandenza oh, and, and she Thanksgiving, and Avril. she survived Avril. Mm-hmm. That's and right. And then they went to Joel's family's uh, for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Survived. Which but yeah. The other. Uh, the, the point that I wanted to make about that is that there's the dread you're looking for that, uh-huh. that she says this to Gately and he has the like the this like sinking feeling that uh, he doesn't know what to say in reply. He has absolutely nothing in his huge square head to identify with her or latch on to or say an encouraging reply. And for an instant, uh, his own heart grips him like an infant rattling the bars right. of its playpen and he feels a greasy wave of an old and almost unfamiliar panic. And for a second, it seems inevitable that at some point in his life, he's going to get high again and be right. back in the cage all over right. again. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that when I, I read when when she made the comment about the grammar the grammar problem and how deeply it troubled her and I immediately thought that sounds like that would be Avril's take on it too. Yeah. It took mm-hmm. me back to when we didn't know who Madame Psychosis was and, and my thought, first thought that yeah. it was Avril. Yeah. But there were things about her that made me think she was Avril, which if she was similar if she has similar if she's similar to Avril, who also is supposedly quite a beautiful woman, right, and smart, and uh, that that perhaps that's what drew James O. to Joel. Maybe maybe she well, reminded and, and him Oren, of a younger Avril. Well, yeah, and Oren, Oren too. also, yeah. uh, who who by all accounts has some serious. Uh, mother, issues. mother issues, which, oh, yeah. yeah, that I think are far more complicated than him just disliking her. Right. Um, yeah. The other little, the other point that came up, which I think we talked about last time was the veiled people and yeah. how. Yeah, there's how, a few of them here. And they say there's a half dozen veiled people at mm-hmm. the White Flag meeting. Most, mostly women, but one man. Uh-huh. Who is a burn victim, I think? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He fell asleep with uh, some alcohol and a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Or like a cigarette on a vinyl couch or something like that. Yeah. The other thing the other thing about Joel is 
uh, I mean, why do, why do people feel like they know Joel's voice? That was a big question I had because Don Gately felt that way. Like there I was mean, something remotely. She's mad in psychosis. Uh, and, and so then I think, well, they've listened to Madam Psychosis. But then I thought about the conversations we had about that broadcast and how limited how it, it's Yeah, you have to really turn. It's like in this little tiny that, area. And so, I could see... So would Don... Yeah. Don Gately doesn't seem like the kind of guy that has had the kind of life that would give we don't him even, a routine of somehow yeah. latching on to... It doesn't seem... It doesn't... Need, I, I don't I'm, know. I'm it was skeptical Mario that, that said the same thing. It was Mario, too, that had that that feeling that that you know the feeling like like he knew like i can't even remember how it described that feeling that he had uh about knowing the voice in a very kind of remote way which i mean now makes sense in a way that he knows her voice because he spent time with her but it doesn't say like that he recognized that's joelle's voice which you would think he would have recognized if he was spending time with his father and Joelle that he would know that that was Joelle's voice instead of this like really remote kind of distant vague feeling that that he knows this voice i think she's very mysterious Mm-hmm. This chapter also talked about her speech patterns and how strange her speech patterns are. That kind of, but not quite Southern uh, accent. And uh, she has some kind of little almost speech, uh, what would I say, discrepancy? Like something weird about the way she pronounces a lot of her consonants that makes her voice very like very memorable in a way her speech mm-hmm. mm. i think she's very oh she also references in when she talks to gately wanting to put her head in a radar range right <sighs> which seems a pretty casual reference to drop based on no kidding her history um, then we get this little, there's one little commercial break in this oh section gosh, where we get this so mm-hmm. horrifying, the statue of Liberty holds a, instead of a torch now holds, uh, a product that's right. changed each January 1st, which so makes me think the, it's probably subsidized year. Product yeah. It's whatever is, uh, you know, there. it's a Whopper or a right. trial size Dove bar or uh-huh. whatever. Yeah. Or dairy yes. products from the American heartland. Which I imagine undergarment. is just like a like a cornucopia of of milk bottles and cheese wheels and mm-hmm. butter and stuff just spilling off of a tray. And then you have the adult diaper. Yeah. Holding an adult diaper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's uh, that was really a a gripping picture. Mm-hmm. And a scathing review of our commercialistic capitalistic. Uh, uh, take on liberty. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> there were other things about the meeting. They talk about right after that uh, Statue of Liberty image. They, he talks about um, 
about the various, like it's really, I guess he's talking about the pressures to uh, toe the line in AA Mm -hmm. that are achieved without, without making rules like if you use your substance of choice, you're out. You know, if you, if you backslide, then you're out. That's not, that's not the case. Uh, And he talks about, talks about, really peer pressure and and like the the punishment provided by a large crowd feeling embarrassed for you when you're speaking mm-hmm. like that's a that's for those of us who sort of cringe from public speaking in front of large groups that would be like that would be like just about my worst fear it's one yeah. thing to have the crowd kind of booing or kind of Un, finding you uninteresting, but if they start fidgeting in that way of people who are really embarrassed for you, that that would just do me in. Like that would mm-hmm. be the harshest. That would be the harshest response that I can imagine. I would just want to disappear, and <laughs> I might, I might just, you know, close up my little speech and go away. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. Mm-hmm. It sounds so painful, or or trying to be funny. Uh, right. Yeah. Don't try to be funny at an AA meeting. It's not amusing. Right. Tell the truth. But if and so people get embarrassed then if you try to be funny too. They they really kind of discount you. But if you tell the truth, then everybody's laughing. When right. you tell your true story, then right. the whole truth is stranger than fiction. Truth is funnier than fiction. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they're they're really says they're really laughing at recognizing their own right. stories. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then there's this other long and particularly horrifying story of this woman who's like trying to put an explanation to her, her addiction, which they also say is kind of an unspoken no, no, that you don't, you don't try and explain it because it's sort of like giving yourself an excuse. Mm hmm. But she's also been successfully sober for 31 months. She says, right. So whatever is working for her. Which I, yeah, I found that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, that raised a lot of questions for me, too, because that's a very cerebral way of looking at your substance substance abuse problem to try to analyze what happened to you to send you down that path and to try to understand what it was and try to figure out how to let it go. It's much more, um, it's much more of an intellectual process than just giving it all up to the, to the 12 step program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But is it, but in a way it seems like what's to be gained from discounting how people get to where they are. There is something to me, it's like, yeah, but if anybody had a, if anyone had a reason to be screwed up, it's this woman. She had terrible, terrible things happen to her. I mean, that's yeah. one of the yeah. most uncomfortable parts of the book, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Reading her story, oh, yeah. it was it was horrifying. And, and so, I, to totally discount that is not like that's not the point. Is yeah. is there's so, something weird about that to me? There's a, and, and Gately even mentions this that there's certain like dogma in in AA that he's not totally sure about, even though it claims to not have any dogma. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, I do think I, I want to bring up just briefly that there are like there are legitimate criticisms of AA. And I did a little looking into this. There's a 2015 long read article in The Atlantic by Gabrielle Glazer about uh, the problems with AA. She also did an interview with NPR around the time where she talked about it a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, so AA dates back to 1935. That's when it first started. Uh-huh. And she says, uh, we did a lot of things in 1935 that we don't do anymore. You know, when babies were delivered, we spanked them on the bottom and held them upside down. And that's something that didn't necessarily hurt babies, but we don't do that anymore. I'm not saying AA shouldn't exist, but what I am saying is that we can't prove its efficacy. And some of the studies that have been done just don't justify our immense reliance on a system that hasn't been found to be effective. Um, she's critical of this idea that AA is kind of synonymous with recovery programs. And there, are, she says there are other recovery programs that might work better than AA. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says this treatment can actually be just as damaging and dangerous for the people for whom it's failing. AA doesn't refer anybody out. It doesn't tell anybody that AA is not for them. AA tells people that if they don't benefit, it's basically their fault. This has produced really a lot of tragedies. Hmm. Which is, you know, I think that's a legitimate yeah, criticism. Like, it, it seems to work for people. Uh, but what we're hearing about here is a self-selected sample of, you know, it's exactly. it, people have self-selected as AA works for them. And then they say, I'm proof that AA works for me. But we're not hearing from all the people who it doesn't work for. Right. Yeah. And yet I can kind of see, I mean, there's part of me. I'm a, you know, I work with little kids and work with families in trauma and to me, it's there's no point in denying what's happened to you. That to me, that doesn't seem right. like a complete healing. But maybe that's separate from the whole substance recovering from addiction. I mean, maybe that's a separate issue that it's important to look at and uh, intellectually figure out. But maybe. Like you have to do some like triage first, to, maybe. Like, maybe, like, maybe you just have to stop and say, uh, "I'm going to come to these meetings." <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, you it give your life like, a new, like, give your life a new structure, a new uh, format that you're that you're living in. I don't know. Yeah, two things. Um, one, I think that. Analyzing the reasons that made you an alcoholic seem better in something like therapy than right. perhaps a support group. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Two, like too much sharing. Even, maybe. Like maybe. maybe. Too or much like detail. Uncritical sharing. Right. Um. Uh, two. I was talking to Andrew about this, that I think, or I suspect that part of what makes AA work in this context is that it gives alcoholics a different thing to be addicted to. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Addicted to their meetings, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know? And is that a bad thing, I guess, if you're, if you have... You know, if you have addiction issues and you're susceptible to falling prey to addiction issues, then maybe the best choice really is to find something to be addicted to that is relatively harmless and maybe even positive. It's like I can see that if if in AA meetings you start sharing 
the things that you believe led you to your addiction, that all of a sudden, all of a sudden then people start being, uh, like there'd be layers, like there'd be tiers of people that like deserve to be addicted, like, like, well, it really wasn't her fault. Look, all these terrible things happened to her. So she's mm-hmm. at a she's at a different kind of spot than the person who had a great life and just kind of accidentally got hooked on a drug that they couldn't shake. You know, right. you know there are a lot of ways to come to an addiction problem. And some people are driven to an addiction problem and some people just kind of wander into it out of bad luck or something, bad few bad choices. But then so then you'd have different levels and then would you treat people differently because of how they got there? In this in the way of you know, if they don't share the reasons for why they think they became addicted and instead just say, I have this problem then everyone can say, yeah, I have that problem too. And I have, it gives more of a camaraderie and more of a Yeah, you identify better. We're all the same. We're all the same. We have an addiction problem. But as soon as you Mm -hmm. start giving the specifics, then it's really clear that you're not all the same. And you're dealing with perhaps way different stuff. I mean, Gately even says, though, that like that's part of the process of joining the group is that you or at least for him, he started out making comparisons and being like, well, this person experienced something that I didn't experience. And it wasn't until later that he was able to do a more deep listening and realize that they're kind of just talking about different different facets of the same thing. Right. Right. This is just a small aside, too, but something weird in that hideous description of yeah. the woman, you know, the hideous, the hideous yeah. part. There's the talk about the magazines in the bedside table in the room of these two girls, one of mm-hmm. them who is young, a young teen, I guess, probably. Yes, yeah. middle, mid-teen, and the other totally disabled. And in that, in that bedside table in their room are Ramparts and Commonweal magazines. Back issues of these magazines that are like political. Oh, is uh, that what those are? Yeah, the the Ramparts is a glossy political uh, and literary magazine, sort of new left uh, point of view that was published from 62 to 75. Huh. So they would have even been... Commonweal is a liberal American Catholic journal of opinion, and it is the oldest such journal in America. It was first published in 1924. Huh. Mm. So what what are those magazines doing in that room? Yeah, that that seems like a complete non sequitur. It does. That irony. And did you catch the... um, it says that that speaker belongs to another 12-step program. Did you catch that? I did. I thought that that was I, – I wanted to bring that up as something that I'm not happy at in the book, that it, it references this other group that she's joined is wounded, hurting, inadequately nurtured, but ever-recovering survivors. Oh, uh, yeah. The anagram whiners. of which is whiners, which is mm. like, come on. Yeah, you I know. know. I know. You're saying she's yeah. a whiner for what she for talking about what she's right. experienced, like right. on on a narrative level, on any level, like 
I thought the group was a legitimate group. Yes. That I think it's a legitimate group about that, her being a but, part of. But right. whiners. It's 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 whiners. It's, yeah. not, I, it's not the author's fault that the character it is the author's, it is the fault, author's that fault that the character this is a work of created that acronym. <laughs> yes it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it is his fault. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, really, yeah. In, in a way, it's kind of that whole thing of poking fun at people with disabilities and, and, and people that look different and people that have had horrible, horrible. Right. The, so, somehow a, a support group like that experiences that is making like, fun of them. Kind yeah, of like and, not legitimate. And, Whereas AA, you know, that's that's the legitimate recovery group. Right. I don't know. Or, or like really recovering weird. from recovering from addiction is possible, but recovering from an abusive childhood is not or something. There was also something, something, some things in this book remind me of our, our pandemic situation. And there was a mm. part, I see if I can find it, where uh, Gately was talking about uh, his without any sort of, usually without any sort of clue about where he's headed in sobriety or what he's supposed to be doing or about really anything at all, except that he's not at all keen to go back out there uh, yeah. behind any bars again in a hurry. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. For some reason I felt like yeah, it's kind of like, it's kind of like being shut in our own little spaces and, mm-hmm. yeah. and the thought of going back out there with capital letters is, yeah, uh, intimidating. Kind of, kind of good and kind of alarming and like, yeah. is that really a place you want to go? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm prepared to talk about some Well, don't biographical... forget the last words. Don't forget the last words of the chapter, though, because those are yeah. pretty good, too. Uh, do not ask why. If you don't want to die, do like you're told. If you want to get old. Mm-hmm. 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 If it and rhymes, it must says, be true. And somewhere he says, they say, check your head at the door. You know, don't overthink. Don't, don't, don't intellectualize this whole thing. Check your head at the door when you come to the AA meeting. Don't look for cause. Just remember you've got the disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did want to mention, too, some of Gately's um, uh, discomfort with talking to Joel. Mm, and part yeah. of it... Part of it is that he doesn't quite know what to make of what she said. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, he can't, yeah. like, maybe he can't he tell doesn't. whether she's serious. And, but it talks about how uh, that her veil, he finds that her veil makes it really almost impossible for him to hear her in the sense of listening closely. Like, he's, right. he makes a point several times in this chapter talking about how he makes, he has his, his Ennett House people sit right up front at these meetings so that you can see speakers' pores and nose yeah. hair. And yeah. that he has to be right there where he can really see their face and, like, the all the human little imperfections and the human, you know, the right. details. And so having this person with a veil has really flummoxed him. And I just mm-hmm. thought about how... It is really true. It's like if you can't see the person that you're talking to, you have such a much more limited uh, 
ability to communicate, really. It's like us talking about this book. You know, we can't see each other. So you don't know if the other person, people are all yawning or like going and getting a peanut butter sandwich or, you know. Right. Uh, and that's just, why I like phone interviews. <laughs> uh. Yeah, except that's why I don't, I think that's, I hate uh, talking with people that I don't know on the phone. Hmm. If I know them really well and I can, I think it's, because then I can picture their face and I can kind of, I can, there. I know enough about them that I can kind of tell just by their responses what some of some of what I would normally read from looking at them but mm -hmm. when it's somebody that I don't know I feel I I am almost phone phobic uh, well this and gets... I think it's because I can't I can't see them and I don't I think I don't trust people's words and their voices this gets uh, back to mm -hmm. that that thing early on though about video calling and the TP uh -huh, consoles right, right, and right. how yes. mm -hmm. uh, with with phone calls we have this kind of social contract where we both both ends of the conversation agree to pretend that they have the other person's undivided attention. Right, right, right. Um, but with video calls, you either it either demonstrates that that's not the case, or you have to actually give the person your undivided attention, right. which is exhausting. Uh, is exhausting, right? Yeah. So anyway, it's interesting. It's interesting to think about, so the people that choose to wear these veils, uh, they are hiding their face for whatever reason, uh, because they, I guess because they believe others shouldn't need to look at their face, mm -hmm. right? Either because it's too disfigured and hideous and they don't want to make that person suffer through looking at them, or... Or they're too beautiful and they don't want the other person to suffer from that. Uh, but but it also it also obviously in the case of Don Gately makes it less able for others to hear what you're even saying. Mm -hmm. Not only are they not see having being subjected to your face, but that somehow. I don't know. I don't know what it all means. I think the more that he talks to her, the more she'll, uh, her vocal tone and stuff will say more. Mm-hmm. I suppose. Him, but. Although he's also kind of, he's, I think he's also thrown by her voice and her accent and her kind of slightly unusual sounding way of talking mm, that there's yeah. she's such a mysterious entity for him hmm. so um I've, I've never really looked into david foster wallace's biography in any depth before and in fact it's something i've kind of avoided doing i think um but I kind of stumbled across this stuff in my research this morning about his uh, his views on uh, on irony. Um, led me to an article in the All about his papers. They're collected at the uh, University of Texas at Austin, um, and include a, yeah, a pretty there? size. I don't know. They um, must have bought them. 
is per, perhaps okay. possible. But it includes a, a sizable collection of mass market self-help books um, that were apparently mm. things that he um, he really spent a lot of time reading, and they're they're full of marginal notes and annotations and stuff. Um, but it also oh. includes some other some other letters and writings and things. Uh, and and so I I found out some other information about his history with AA and, and Boston. Um, in 1989, he spent some time in a halfway house in Boston called Granada Mm. house. Uh, uh, and he writes six months in Granada house helped me immeasurably. I still wince at some of the hyperbole and melodrama that are used in recovery speak. But the fact of the matter is that my experience at Granada house helped me starting with the fact that the staff admitted me despite the obnoxious condescension with which I spoke of them, the house and the 12 step programs, programs of recovery they tried to enable. They were patient. That sounds, that sounds just like Don Gately. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was also 27 when he entered Granada House. Hmm. Um, uh, they were patient, but they were not pushovers. They enforced a structure and discipline about recovery that I was not capable of on my own. Mandatory counseling, mandatory AA or NA meetings, mandatory employment, curfew, chores, etc. Not to mention required reading of AA, NA literature, whether I found it literary, li- literarily distinguished or not. People at Granada House listened to me for hours and did so with neither the clinical disinterest of doctors nor the hand-wringing credulity of relatives. They listened because, in the last analysis, they really understood me. They had been on the fence, both wanting to get sober and not, of loving the very thing that was killing you, of being able to imagine life neither with drugs and alcohol nor without them. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Parachute is found the fly again. Uh Uh-oh. And... She killed it! Hooray! Good job! Oh, yay! Oh, now she's trying to... thirsty oh, little bugger. And she ate it. Good kitty. Oh. thirsty little predator. I'm so proud of you. Mm-hmm. Okay. This right. is um, all fascinating stuff. Keep going. It is. This is, this is so wildly just Don Gately. Yeah. yeah. They listened mm. because in the last analysis, they really understood me. They had been on the fence of both wanting to get sober and not of neither of loving the, the very thing that was killing you of being able to imagine life, neither with drugs and alcohol nor without them. They also recognized bullshit and manipulation and meaningless intellectualization as a way of evading terrible truths. And on mm. many days, the most helpful thing they did was to laugh at me and make fun of my dodges, which were, I realize now, pathetically easy for a fellow addict to spot and to advise me just not to use chemicals today because tomorrow might very well look different that's really stunning yeah that's so so I that's, mean, that's like that's this very chapter. clearly that that is yeah um and even the same age right isn't isn't yeah, don Gately yeah they the same both age? 27 yeah yeah mm. um although uh dfw was in a different position his experience i believe was with uh, well alcohol and and drug use i guess is what what Don Gately is his is in his past. Also, um, he had been institutionalized for a suicide attempt not long before this, um, and this also leads me to another thing that I think we need to talk about in relationship to David Foster Wallace and Infinite Jest, and that is his relationship with the poet and the memoirist Mary Carr. Hmm. Um, they met at an AA meeting in Boston. Uh, and he pursued an obsessive and sometimes abusive relationship with her over the next few years. 
uh, as a resident at Granada House, he contemplated buying a gun to kill her husband. Um, and, and he did some pretty awful things in his pursuits of her. Um, marginal notes in some of the self-help books mention her. And uh, I, I'm going to quote here an article by Evan Hughes in a New York Magazine interview with Mary Carr. Uh, Carr gave Wallace some of those self-help books, and I told her that one of Wallace's notes pertains to her. It uses her initials, and I offered to read it to her. Carr has very good posture. At this moment, it became even better. Wallace remarks in the note that he seems better able to summon enthusiasm for something when it is secondary to something else in his life. He writes, the key to 1992 is that MMK was most important. IJ was just a means to her end, as it were. Who is IJ? Carr said. Infinite jest. Infinite jest. Oh, she did not seem flattered. I read the sentence again. How is it a means to capture me? Is that it? Carr said. That's crazy. That's really insane. Um, so it seems to me that there are some parallels between Oren and Joelle's relationship in Infinite Jest here, uh, even in some cases reproducing minute details. So there's another reference that. Uh, another mention that Wallace and Carr had a mutual love for renting movies in which things blew up. Um, huh. Although huh. his real life relationship had a much uglier and, and significantly more one-sided tone than the one in the book. Um, so, yeah. I, I huh. wanted to bring this up huh. because, because it makes me really sad. Um, and it also, I feel like it's necessary to kind of interrupt... I think this thing that, you know, this yeah. whole book, the whole book. So it fills me with dread for the characters in the book and what's going to happen in the book. But it's impossible to set aside the knowledge that the author commits suicide eventually. Yeah. Because, mm. and it, it really shows the complex issues that leads to drive someone to suicide because he writes you know, there are all these, all these uh, suicide attempts and actual, you know, realization, like Incandenza's suicide and Joel and others who are, uh, that, so he seems, it kind of goes back to that idea about check your head at the door. Like, it doesn't matter that he can write about these issues and... Uh, and clearly not in a glamorous way, you know, as a, like, this is a good solution that they're trying to kill themselves. And so, and yet in the end, in the end, it gets him, the author, mm -hmm. in spite of the fact that it's a topic that he obviously thinks about and tries to figure out and make sense of. And that makes me so sad. Well, this mm -hmm. is, I, I think this is like, this is a myth of mental illness too, or it's just something that we misunderstand about it is like, just because you can understand rationally that you have an illness doesn't right. mean that you can reason yourself out of it. Well, and um, I think that that's what Gately is saying about AA. Yeah. I'm you reminded. Can think, you can think about it. You can understand it. You can understand how you got where you are, but that's not going to help you. I had in the uh, end in in high school. I took a an AP Psych class. That was a really spectacular mm. class. I remember um, when you took that. You really. Yeah, it's probably my favorite class that I took in mm -hmm. high school. Mm. Um, 
and we had one of the students in class, her mother, uh, had schizophrenia and, um, and the teacher invited her in one, one week as like a guest speaker to talk about kind of her experience with schizophrenia. Um, and she talked about, so she was taking medication for it that she said managed her symptoms, but didn't eliminate them. Um, but her, her, her thing was visual hallucinations that she hallucinated, uh, people who weren't actually there. And she mentioned that like, I'm sitting here and looking at you in the class, uh, and and there there's some people standing behind you that are familiar to me, and I and I know that they're not there, but that doesn't mean that I can't see them. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um. So yeah, but also I, I I think that mom, you you mentioned something that that I want to talk about a little more explicitly before we move on, which is this, uh, this kind of the the figure of the tortured genius in art. Uh-huh. Um, and this idea that like, particularly, it seems particularly men and especially in literature, although I'm sure it's true in other fields as well, um, that like being complicated and suffering a lot kind of gives you this license to behave in monstrous ways if you use it to, to write really good books. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I, that's, that's that's nonsense. And, you know, it, it makes me really sad when I find something like this out about, um, the writer of a book that I really like, because, you know, and this is one of the reasons why I do kind of often dread bringing author biographies into the the discussion Mm -hmm. of books, because like infinite just speaks to me on a lot of levels. Um, and I, and I do think it's a really powerful work of fiction that means a lot to me. Um, and I just, I just find it so disappointing that like my vision that that David Foster Wallace did not live up to my, my like private vision of who David Foster Wallace was. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so this, but they talk, you know, the books that we've, we've talked over and over about how, how, uh, unkind the book is and it's, in its in the, the story is in characters dealing with the disabilities of others and the people are treated really poorly with dis, when they have disabilities and I guess you could add that that mental health piece yeah yeah um, this piece in the all is a, a, about Wallace's uh, library like like collected writings. Um, is a, is a real deep dive. And it's something that I, uh, I just kind of skimmed today and kind of searched for relevant things. Um, but I, I plan on reading through, uh, more deeply. It, It seems like there is a lot in there that's like, um, relevant to the writing of Infinite Jest and, and kind of where some of these, ideas arose from uh like for instance uh i i found a a kind of delightful fact in amongst some of the sadness and ugliness which is that the phrase howling phantods um was coined by david foster wallace's mother Mm. uh, in in the only book that she ever published which was an english grammar book titled practically painless english no yeah no. Oh wow! Don't yeah. tell me that his mother was Avril. 
So, or maybe do tell me that. I yeah, don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, so again, like, I'm I'm trying not to dwell on on this stuff because it is like, it can easily become like a scavenger hunt to try and explain a work of literature. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Which but I don't think is kind of in a way it do, it's like way back to the when we first started this and your grandma said, well, the author had to live all this or he couldn't write. He couldn't come up with this. And I argued against that. And I still would argue that you don't have to experience something to right. write it. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, it it's probably it probably does explain why some of the pieces of the narrative are so uh, so impactful is because mm-hmm. he really does and he he really gets some of this stuff in a way that I wouldn't that I wouldn't be able to write about it that he really does and so you're right you don't want to think that this is his life story because that that takes away from the book and it wasn't I'm sure it wasn't his intent and yet it is true that an author's life does does affect the way he or she writes and what they write. Well, so that's our that's our David Foster Wallace history lesson for the week. Okay. That's pretty good. I found this all so totally disorienting to read all those pages. How many pages did we read? It was a long chunk. It was, it was a long chunk. It was all just chunk. one thing, all on yeah. one thing. It was yeah. it was remarkable. I didn't mm-hmm. think he had it in him. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'm kind of glad that he did, though. Yeah. 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 Although I find that I get antsy about the people that he's left, the stories right. that he's left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the Eschaton disaster and. Right. Uh, yeah. What's happening Interdependence with that? Day celebration at. At Enfield and the guys on the ledge and the, you know, there's just a lot. There's just a lot hanging around. Mm hmm. At least we know that Joel is alive. Whether that's, that's good yeah, or bad, that's, whether that's good or bad, we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have to uh, do a quick informal plug for uh, a podcast called The Dollop. There's an episode that I just listened listened to. So The Dollop is like two comedians basically doing book reports about American history to each other. Mm. Um, and just listened to an episode that they did about the Coors family of the, oh. the brewery fortune, but also yeah. of a, a secret ceramics fortune. Oh, um, I, oh they, I know uh, that. I know yeah. about that. Uh, they... The, the reason I bring it up is because when I was listening to it, I kept thinking, well, so the Coors family is really messed up in a lot of ways uh, and has been going back uh, generations. And I kept, as I was listening to it, I kept thinking, like, this is the same family dynamic as the Incandenzas. Like, the only oh. difference is that instead of being about tennis, it's about beer and chemistry. Wow. Do you think that this is the fate of all families, really? I mean, they're kind of the incandenses, and it sounds like the Coors are perhaps extremes. But do you think that all families and generationally operate the same way? No, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think that. Hmm. Um, I think that 
Okay. <laughs> I think I think that families can work the way that they're supposed to over time, oh, uh, and and that they don't always do this. That's good. Because I worry about it. I mean, I don't think my family works that way. But then I think, well, maybe I'm just too close to it. And, you know, <laughs> and I think that that we're that we're more okay than that. But but then I wonder, is it just because I'm too close to it to see? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. That I'm that I'm forcing my children to be things that they aren't that they aren't, and trying to no. destroy their lives. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wait, so we're specifically talking about your relationship with your children here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're good. Yeah, you're fine. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, thank you. We (laughs) absolve you. Yeah. Thank you. That makes Um, me feel better. (laughs) Does anyone have anything they'd like to plug? I want to plug uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mm, yes. Ooh, if you yes. haven't listened to her speech on the floor of the house, it's awesome. It's spectacular. Yeah. I read somewhere somebody described it as like the most important feminist speech in decades. I would believe it. It is mm-hmm. so powerful, and she is so amazing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Uh, I hope that the. I hope that the men in Congress can take a breath and try to listen to what she said and take mm-hmm. it to heart uh, in spite of my belief that they can't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, she said some really hard truths that need to be said over and over and over and mm-hmm. over again. And mm-hmm. it was especially powerful because not only is she speaking as a woman, but a woman of color, a woman, yeah. Uh, yeah. and man, she was really incredible. Mm-hmm. I could just listen to her talk forever. I want I to know her opinions on everything. Yeah, I wish she mm-hmm. were. I keep telling her that she needs to age more quickly because <laughs> it's a shame that she can't be a VP candidate. Mm-hmm. Oh, she could be a VP. She'd be, yeah, but she can't because she couldn't take over the job of president when Joe Biden drops dead from his heart attack. Oh, yeah. So. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I think we need to lower. I think we need to lower the age uh, requirement for president. Yeah, we need to lower the age requirements for everything. Lower the voting age to like 12. Oh, take away the age requirements for office office holding, whatever it would take. Uh, we could do that, and we could change the name of the White House all at the same <laughs> right. time. Because why is it the White House? Come on. Mm. I assume it's just because of the color. And I don't know. The, I'm becoming more cynical all the time. So yeah, yeah. The white person has. Too, the- while we're changing sports names and mascots, I think we might right. as well change yeah. the White House. Have they de- have they decided mm-hmm. what their new name is going to be? It's going to be something dumb, isn't it? Yeah. Washington? No, they're they're taking a year to decide, oh, okay. and this year they are just going to be called the Washington Football Team. Oh, okay, <laughs> well, um, you Washington. know, honestly, that's cute. yeah, right? I think right now the leading name is like the Washington Redbirds or something. <laughs> oh. Huh. Okay. They're now a college yeah. team. All, mm-hmm. I mean, all all team names are ridiculous. 
Thanks. Both yeah. names are either oh, racist oh, the, or ridiculous in some kinds of Have you read both. the new name for the the new uh, expansion team for the ho- National Hockey League? Seattle no. has a team. Oh, you'll oh. love this. The Krakens. The Krakens. <gasps> oh, so good. That's wow. Awesome. I, I'm in favor of naming all sports teams after cryptids. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Krakens. Let, yes. Krakens. Let's do it. That that would that might make me watch sports. Mm. So what is a kraken? Mm. It's some kind of sea monster. It's an, a massive right? eldritch yeah. horror. It's like mm. a, what? an enormous squid that's like miles in diameter. Oh. Reaches up with tentacles and drags down ships and stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, plugs. If you want to see a short film that Vinny and I made called Call to Forehead in the style of an early 90s low-budget thriller, uh, you can go to my website, agingrick.com. Uh, if you want to check out any of my paintings, you can go to my Instagram at CardboardVV. If you want to see pictures of a baby blanket I knitted once upon a time, you can visit my website at BriannaKratz.com. I'm old. I don't have a website. Apparently, it's the new thing. Or no, not it's not. So new it's the old thing. A, no, it's, the, it's not cool to have a website anymore. Nope. Oh, well, I'm from the generation <laughs> that it's not even possible to have a website. So, so there you go. So if you want to know you more about Instagram. me, me, I don't, yeah. I've never posted. I don't know how to use it. Oh, my gosh. We're going to work on that. Next week, we'll be talking about pages 375 to 395. Our music is by David Nichols. You can listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. Thanks for listening. And remember, easy does it. Turn it over one day at a time. And uh, hey, everybody, uh, good news. We are over a third of the way done with the book. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, like, it looks like we've been reading.